It's the breakthrough Ukraine's president has desperately wanted for more than a year. Western F-16 fighter jets to defend the skies. President Putin has accused the West of seeking Russia's strategic defeat and threatened to target US-made F-16 fighter jets if they're supplied to Ukraine. For two years now, President Zelensky has travelled the world making increasingly urgent pleas to his Western allies for upgraded weaponry and more ammunition. His appeals have met with mixed success, but one big-ticket item, elusive up to now, is about to arrive on the battlefields of eastern Ukraine. This summer, the first American-made F-16 fighter jets transferred in support of the war effort will arrive in Ukraine, courtesy of the Netherlands. Procuring the jets has been a complicated and lengthy process, and the latest reporting issuing from the battlefield suggests their arrival may prove timely. Because in Ukraine over the past couple of weeks, it's begun to look like things are going the wrong way. Ukraine's military is now warning that Russia is about to launch a major offensive. Ukrainian commanders with a stark warning. Russia is on the brink of a major offensive on multiple fronts across the east. Russian troops are closing in on eastern Ukraine, forcing Kyiv to retreat after months of heavy fighting. A sight not seen for a while. A Russian flag going up over Ukraine. As distinct from the partisan political games currently being played with Ukraine's future in Washington, Zelensky's request for F-16s met with a cool diplomatic response from the outset. But as world leaders wrung their hands, Zelensky's appeals only grew louder. Because in the skies above the front lines, a fierce air battle is underway. A more numerous modern Russian air force is riding roughshod over the battle space, and Ukrainian fighter pilots are struggling to hold on. They're being shot down, and they're dying. Ukraine's aces trying to keep Russian air defenses off balance say they need F-16s from the US and its allies to level the playing field. The fighter pilots of the Ukrainian Air Force mostly fly MiG-29s, a Soviet-era multi-role fighter that was introduced in 1983. It's considered a fourth-generation fighter, a category which forms the modern standard for conventional light attack aircraft. Fifth-generation fighter aircraft, like the American F-22 Raptor and the F-35 Lightning, assume a different role in combat than their fourth-generation counterparts. They can still do fighter jet stuff, but they're oriented around stealthiness and equipped with advanced integrated systems that mean they operate more like a command and control asset in the war space than an outright offensive weapon. The most formidable fourth generation fighter in the world today is the Lockheed Martin manufactured American F-16, a single engine supersonic air superiority fighter that with the right driver should win a close quarters dogfight against any other jet in the air, including fifth generation fighters, most of the time. First introduced in 1978, it's been constantly upgraded into the most potent weapon of its type in the skies today. The MiG-29, on the other hand, is less evolved. It's very reliable, it's very fast, and it's very loud, but it's not very nimble. This gap in fighting capability is why the Ukrainians are so desperate for F-16s. Last year, I traveled to Bozeman, Montana, to interview the four astronauts blasting off to outer space in a couple of months on Polaris Dawn. Before the interview, they invited me to ride along with them as they took three fighter jets out for a joyride. The jet I rode in was a MiG-29, and while there weren't any F-16s on our hop for me to observe firsthand, I'm told they're substantially more maneuverable and even faster than the MiG-29 and would make easy work of it in a dogfight. And I must say, I'm pretty blown away by that. Because the MiG was ridiculous. Copy Bozeman Tower, I see him. We are a MiG-29 and two 
Two Alpha Jets in formation, over. Goose Three keeps on trucing. That was sick. Yeah. I can see why you guys did that once and then never stopped doing it again. <laughs> that was unreal. Absolutely. Thank you, mate. Absolutely. So good. The sharks, though. In the United States Air Force, each year the top 1% of F-16 combat pilots are selected to attend the Air Force Fighter Weapons School, an elite program where roughly 20 airmen pass through each year and upon graduating are considered the most lethal in the service. Today's guest is both a graduate and a former instructor of the Fighter Weapons School. And if the name of the school or its admission criteria sound familiar, you've probably heard of the equivalent program for naval aviators, the Navy Fighter Weapons School. Although the flyers there call it by a different name. You two characters are going to Top Gun. Tower, this is Ghost Rider requesting flyby. Negative, Ghost Rider. The pattern is full. I'm engaged to five. Repeat five. I'm in deep six. Too close for missiles, Goose. I'm switching to guns. That's all. I'm taking a shot. Fire. Bingo. Keep coming. Keep coming. Jesus, this guy's good. Today's guest is John Bohm, a decorated combat veteran, call sign Slick, who flew the F-16 in Iraq, Afghanistan, and all over the world before being asked back to fight a weapons school as an instructor. Upon leaving the military, Slick founded Draken, a private aviation company that was subsequently acquired by Blackstone Private Equity. Slick and I sat down at his home in Pennsylvania last week and kicked off our discussion, talking about the untraditional path he followed to become a US Air Force F-16 fighter pilot. Okay, so can you just give us a little I should say com check with you, right? Last time I said sound check to one of your lot, I got made fun of. <laughs> so, good morning, John. Good morning, Jack. Thank you very much for having me into your uh, home here in sunny Pennsylvania today. I'm just going to get this out of the way right at the start. I'm going to call you Slick because I've never heard anybody refer to you by your actual first name, John. Is that the right thing to do? I don't, I don't think I have one anymore. It's been deleted. <laughs> so, Slick, we're going to have a discussion about a whole raft of different issues from the lens of your professional experience. Firstly, as a fighter pilot flying the F-16 for the US Air Force all over the world, and then later as the founder of Draken. But before we get into all that, I'd love if you could give us a little bit of background on how you ended up behind the stick of an F-16. Well, I have to tell you, it's really bizarre on, on initial uh, thought when I hear you say that. I got to fly the F-16 because, you know, my background growing up, that was not even close to being in the cards for me. You know, I, like many, many people had a pretty rough background, divorced parents, moved a lot. Uh, I think I moved 19 times before I graduated high school and really didn't have a whole lot of direction. Um, I think the, the thought was, you know, hey, you're, you're going to be 18, you're going to graduate high school and get a job. And that's just what you do. And I thought I wanted to go to college. And the only thing scholastically that I did well with was, was art and photography. And I was a surfer and a skater. So taking photos and videos of my friends, you know, doing cool tricks was, man, I'm going to travel the world, uh, shoot surfing videos, and, and that's going to be my life. It doesn't <laughs> sound like precisely the upbringing that a Air Force fighter pilot recruitment officer would be looking for amongst students that come through. Would that be fair? No, that it's absolutely right. But I tell you, I was thinking, okay, I've got to get out of this situation. I want more out of life. Uh, going to college is, is what I want to do. I got to get money for school. I'm going to join the Air Force. And I did see the movie Top Gun. <laughs> and like for many people, that was a life changer. But again, you know, I, that was fantasy land. I, of course, as a young boy, I thought jets were cool and who wouldn't want to be a fighter pilot, but, you know, not destined set up for that. And so I don't know anything about it. You know, I grew up on Long Island, New York. There was no military bases with fast jets or anything cool like that. I had no military uh, connections with within my family or friends, anybody that flew jets. No, I mean, I didn't even know uh, anybody that graduated college, to be quite honest with you. So I call the recruiter and say, hey, I want to be a fighter pilot. And he goes, oh, great. Just bring down your four-year degree and, uh, and we'll send you off to flight school. I'm like, 
oh, sir, I just graduated high school. You know, I was, I just turned 17 and I graduated high school early. And he goes, uh, yeah, well in four years, I'm sure your parents have saved up a couple hundred thousand dollars. Just go to college, get uh, straight A's and then call me. We'll put you through flight school. I'm like, oh, sir, you know, my, my family does not have money to send me to college. He goes, well, this is really easy. Just join and we'll give you money for school. And in four years, then, you know, you'll, you'll go to flight school. It's just, it happens all the time. Well, come to find out it does not happen all the time. It's, it's less than 3% of people do what's called, uh, it's affectionately known as being a Mustang, which is somebody who enlists, uh, and they eventually come back in as a commissioned officer. So I joined the air force. I go to technical school and I learn how to, uh, work on cameras with lasers and really cool things like, you know, stuff that goes on the SR-71 U2. I was going to say, if you're working on really high-powered cameras on planes, I imagined there was some interaction with some other three-letter agencies of the U.S. government potentially. Yeah, we those things throughout my career definitely cross paths a lot. Yes. So yes, you can say that for sure. But man, I came into the Air Force and and I absolutely loved it. What were some of the places in the world where you flew the F-16 in combat? Yeah, so I had a very unique experience, uh, one that's pretty well documented, but I was lucky to graduate F-16 school and then go to the Triple Nickel, the world famous 555 fighter squadron uh, at Aviano, Italy. And the first day that I walked into the squadron, I walk in through the front door, go down the hallway, and we're at the op operations desk where... Essentially, the crews, you know, the pilots have briefed and they're ready to go and they're just basically getting, you know, any last minute weather update and, you know, what, a, what jet assignment uh, that they're going to. Hey, what tail are you flying? And there's eight dudes standing at the desk. Nobody has patches on. They're sanitized, as we call it. They've got their G-suits on. They've got their survival vests on. Their harnesses are on. They've got a M9 pistol on their chest with one in the chamber. The safety's off and the hammer's back. This is me walking into my quote unquote in garrison unit that was flying eight combat lines a day uh, over in Bosnia and Kosovo for peacekeeping in the post uh, uh, Balkans war era. So uh, my introduction to combat was my first day at my you know first fighter squadron. Wow. Did you feel like you'd been thrown in the deep end a bit? <sighs> a bit, you know, because th there was a lot of legacy, uh, obviously from a a squadron that calls itself the world famous, highly respected triple nickel, which which they are, you know, one of the most winning uh, fighter squadrons uh, in existence. 39 MIG kills. They were there in 96, 99 when former chief of staff uh, General Golfing was shot down um, by an SA-6 uh, over that region. So um, yeah, to say that you were going to uh, begin life as a fighter, brand new fighter pilot, you know, trial by fire, it was absolutely happening on day one. And then what about later in your career? Did you deploy in any other combat zones? In March of 2003 is when shock and awe kicked off, mm -hmm. went to Iraq um, in the spring of 2004. And that was a really, really hot time. Uh, Fallujah was kicking off the movie American Sniper. That's when the sniper wars were happening rooftop to rooftop and during the deployment uh, was the time frame for those that remember the contractors that were hung off the bridge in Fallujah. Uh, very, very hostile, very, very uh, hot time. And, you know, we had U.S. Marines surrounding uh, the city of Fallujah and we were very, very active. And we were at the time stationed out of Doha, Qatar. And so we were flying both in Iraq and Afghanistan. So depending on, you know, what day of the week it was, was, hey, I'm going to Iraq or tomorrow I'm going to Afghanistan. So, so you fly from Doha to either theater, do your work and then fly back. And you have to refuel midair to do that, presumably? Many times, yes. So your average sortie duration going uh, into Iraq was six to eight hours. My Afghanistan missions, I have typically three hours up, three hours on station, three hours back. So you're looking at least at a nine hour sortie. I've got uh, like an 11.6 <laughs> under my belt uh, going up there as we were you know, called to stay on station a few times. So. It's a long time to sit in that tiny little cabin. I mean, having experienced it personally, thanks to you and some others recently, it's a long time. It is. Uh, yeah, there's no uh, disconnect your fasten seatbelt sign, get to walk down uh, to the bathroom or anything like that. So I won't ask you the next logical follow-on <laughs> question to the bathroom comment, but let's take Fallujah as an example. In that particular conflict, could you describe what the sequence of events is that occurs when you get the call up to go and do something. 
something flashes on your screen or comes over your radio that tells you you've got work, you've got a job to do, what what happens? Yeah, I mean, it is exactly that. You get the radio call um, and depending on on how you get the tasking, maybe you might be on frequency just observing uh, and, and paying attention to what's going on, or you get told to go to a frequency. And uh, a lot of times, uh, from my experiences, getting uh, told to go to a frequency and there's something active going on. There's a reason why they've, they've pushed you over there. And so one particular day, I definitely can describe to you active, active fighting going on. Uh, rooftop snipers having at it in Fallujah and getting the call where we had uh, some Marines pinned, ba- pinned down by a couple of snipers that were on a roof. And the weather was just absolutely horrible. Uh, it was about 2,000 feet of vertical uh, ceiling that I had to work with and just a couple of miles of visibility. And when you're going 400 knots. What does that mean? So basically, yeah, from the ground to the bottom of the clouds, 2,000 feet. Ah. And then from a visibility standpoint, you know, you can only see about two miles just standing still. So when you're going 400 knots, again, it's, uh, your, your world is really small. And um, I could see where the U.S. Marines were. I could see where the insurgents were fighting and they were, you know, going back and forth. It was really a rainy kind of day, gray overcast, if you can imagine that. And um, just to see these bright muzzle flashes, you know, out, out the side of the canopy. And you know that people are serious when an F-16 is raging around uh, really loud, really low to the ground, and they continue to fight. So the Marines are screaming at you on the radio. Do you see where we are? And yes, we were, I was able to pick up visual of uh, the friendly. It's, it's okay. Well, this is where we're taking fire from. Do you see those guys? Yeah. Okay. We'll get them, you know. <laughs> So you can hear the guys in the gunfight. Absolutely. In your ear while you're flying past over top. You're, you're directly connected to them. Directly connected to them on, on frequency for sure. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, that's when that's when the work gets done. You get called in to make sure you, you save the good guys and, and you take care of the bad guys. And what does the call usually entail? I mean, I guess it's fairly obvious that it's we need some assistance here because we're being shot at is probably the most common one, I imagine. Yes, absolutely. From that point, do you formulate a strategy for how to neutralize that enemy or is there some other decision that's made in a tactical operations center somewhere that Slick should drop a 2,000 pound bomb on this building or fire a missile into it or whatever it is? Right. No, you're definitely describing it very well. You do, as the pilot in command, have final say-so and authority of whether you will or won't drop a weapon. Uh, in this particular case, our troops were in you know close contact, less than a kilometer away from folks uh, that they're taking fire from. So in that case, you're really just trying to mitigate any risk because you're so close to the friendlies. Um, so that's where, as the pilot, you know, you're really directing kind of like your angle uh, and direction of attack and things like that. However, there are things that I may have been able to do, like a 2,000 pounder that close, you know, probably a little, little much. But then, you know, in this particular case, I had a couple 500 pound bombs and I'm like, that is a great target match. And the ground commander is like, you know, unless you can guide it in with your laser, I don't want it. And I told him, I said, you know, I would love to give you the laser guided bomb here, but I just can't do it. The weather's too bad. I couldn't get far enough away to kind of set myself up on like a, a roll-in track, if you will. And is that how you acquire the target for it to lock on? You need to point the radar at it in a somewhat stable manner or? Yeah, either, you know, getting the targeting pod in this case, got a basically a five inch TV screen over my knees on the uh, multifunction display. So trying to keep the crosshairs on it, I was too close to the target based on the visual acuity that I had but the cool thing about these laser-guided bombs is if they don't see laser energy, they still fall on the ballistic track. So I'm like, I know I'm good enough to, to drop this 500-pound bomb right on this building. And the ground commander's like, no, I don't want it. So uh, that's where I had to make the decision. Okay, I have a 2,000-pounder, too big. I have two 500-pounders, but I can't laze them in, and you don't want me to drop them conventionally. So the only thing I have left is the gun. And describe what the gun is. I've got a... Uh, a six barrel, 20 millimeter Gatlin cannon with 509 plus one high explosive, high incendiary rounds. And I could see the guys with canisters in their hands running to resupply this building. It was like their Alamo. And so strafing things from an air to ground perspective, the last guy who ran out of ordnance and was, you know, strafing stuff with the gun was sent home. Like, dude, we don't need to be riding around, you know, shoot. But 
at the time I was thinking like, man, probably going to lose my wings and get sent home. Again, you've got your proverbial 18-year-old Marine yelling at you on the radio. They're taking fire. They're pinned down. They're getting hurt. When I said, hey, I've got the gun left. And they said, well, we need it. And so I went, all right. So I was able to execute two uh, strafing attacks and neutralize the uh, enemy that was taking out our Marines. And when you're sitting in the cockpit, what, what do you actually do to release the weapons on an F-16? Is it a trigger? Is it a button? Is it a touchscreen? What, what mechanically happens for you to go, that's the target and I want to blow it up? Well, in this particular case, you know, we've got all the bells and whistles, but this is the old Mark I eyeball where I'm looking outside and I can see exactly what's going on. And, and the Marines were also using white phosphorus mortars to mark the target. And they, you know, lob this thing over and they say, we just hit the target. That's your target. So now we've got real positive identification. So uh, if, it's a, if it's a bomb or a, or a missile or something like that, it's going to be what we call the pickle button, the big red button right on the top that your, that your thumb would naturally ergonomically fall on. And the cool thing about the F-16 is it was the first jet to have what we call HOTAS, hands-on throttle and stick HOTAS. So once you do your initial setup, like when you're on the ground, you basically can fly the jet for the most part without taking your hands off the throttle and the stick. And uh, we say that it's like flying a piccolo, <laughs> you know, because you're just constantly moving. There's 39 different switch positions with, you know, hundreds of different functions without having to take your hand off. Um, so in this case, it was just selecting the gun as the weapon. And in this case, it was squeezing the trigger to uh, release that ordinance. Do you ever kick yourself for not having replied to that 18-year-old Marine that you're too close for missiles switching to guns? <laughs> yeah, you know, I tell you, I, I, I wish I had the wherewithal and to be that cool, but um, from a very philosophical standpoint, I understood the gravity of the moment. You know, the fact that I've got 29,000 pounds of thrust in my left hand and I've got the ability with my thumb and my index finger on my right hand to, uh, to have 3,000 pounds of uh, ordnance to drop or, you know, like I said, 509 plus one uh, round of 20 millimeter to throw at the enemy. Yeah, I mean, it, you definitely know it's a huge responsibility. Did you ever have a moment of ethical hesitation on any mission with your thumb over that button or your finger in front of that trigger? Um, that you can remember where you were genuinely unsure as to whether or not to release the weapon? No. Anytime uh, being called on to drop ordinance, it was purely because American lives were in danger uh, and being lost. And in my case, I mean, there were folks that were were dying and we were we were there to, to, to save them. So uh, I never had hesitation uh, in the scenarios that I was in. Um, and I don't think that I've ever really talked to anybody that ever had uh, a situation. And I think it was just the nature of when we were called in to release ordinance, again, Americans were dying and uh, it was either do that job to help save another American or you were going to lose more. Over your career, did you ever meet any of the infantrymen whose lives you potentially saved on the battlefield? I, I did actually. And it's, it's funny that you asked me this question because for years, you know, you think about it after the strafing attack, you know, basically you land and you get a little bit of an intel debrief. And I, I had a, a name or two and you just think, hey, man, I'm going to be able to try to find those those guys one day. And ironically, fast forward like 10 years uh, and I was at a think tank event in D.C. And there was a gentleman on stage who's like telling the story about Fallujah and there's F-16s coming in and they're strafing and blah, blah, blah. And like, you know, really the only guy to do that. So I waited until after the event and standing on the side of the stage, I'm like, hey, sir, you know, sorry to bother you. I just want to let you know, like that battle that you described, that was me. That's amazing. You know, I was flying the F-16 that day and it ended up being former uh, Congressman Duncan Hunter from California. He was a uh, Marine reservist and obviously activated at the time. And he was, you know, he was the captain in charge of that group that day. So pretty amazing. Yeah, it must be a good feeling. I mean, not just when you meet the person, just in general, when you come back having known that you've saved some American lives. Well, and uh, this goes back to, I think, the morality question that you asked me. And, and I really hadn't connected the two until you, your question and really in this moment. But there are the times where you think, hey, I did drop a bomb. I did hit a building. Was it really the weapons cache that they said it was? Or could there have been other people, you know? and, and I have thought about the worst case scenario, hitting the wrong thing, and to have the verification from the person who was there, 
the person who is calling in the strike to say, yeah, dude, you did hit the weapons cache that we've been watching. That's why for sure, I, I know I sleep really well at night and I can look at myself in the mirror knowing that, that in my heart of hearts, I did the right thing for, for our people on the ground. So over the course of your career, you were both a student and an instructor at Air Force Fighter Weapons School. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. What was that like? I, I got to tell you again, when, when you asked me that and I'm like, oh, wait, that was me. I, you know, I just, I like pinch myself because I think, yeah, I saw Top Gun and, and what kid didn't want to be in the eighties, you know, what kid didn't want to be Maverick. And yeah, I got selected to go through Top Gun, you know, in the Air Force, we don't call it Top Gun, but you know, we call it the, the fighter weapons school. So yeah, get selected and get to be a student. And then towards the end, I mean, the course was just so tough. It's six months long and it's every day you just feel like, you know, they're going to tell me tomorrow, like you're done. You know, it's just so stressful. Do people get eliminated during the program? They sort of, they cull? They do. Yeah. They, you know, it's about a, between, you know, depending on the years, you know, about a 10 to 20% attrition rate. Okay. And that's presumably of a very small portion of the overall flying cohort in the Air Force. Is that right? It is like the 1% that gets selected to go. So, the, so in the F-16, you know, there's only 20 students that go through per year. So 10 per yeah. class. So yeah, it's a very small group. So at the end, I'm like, oh man, I'm flying with a Commandant again. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, and uh, I'm like, man, that's it. You know, they're, they're making the, not only the commander fly with me, they're making the Commandant fly with me. Like he's the guy that owned the weapons school. And so for like the last two weeks, like every other flight, I'm flying with the Commandant on my wing. So finally at the night where, you know, yes, I am going to graduate, get patched and, you know, the, the Commandant comes over to me. It's at the time, Colonel CQ Brown now. General CQ Brown, who was the chief of staff of the Air Force now, he's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, says, you know, hey, Slick, do you know why I was flying with you so much? I was like, yeah, sir, probably because I was about to wash out. He goes, no, I was evaluating you to come back and we want you to come back as an instructor. And dude, that was just like, oh, you know, it almost brings, you know, fighter pilots don't cry, but every once in a while it can get hot enough to where their eyes will sweat. <laughs> so um, it al I almost got uh, got sweaty in here. But man, I tell you, to to fly at that level to receive that type of training was just absolutely incredible so yeah i got to go through the school and then i got to come back a year later uh, and go through the upgrade to then become an instructor which it was like going through the weapon school all over again but you know not only as a student you know perspective now you're going through the whole thing uh you know to become an instructor so what makes a good fighter pilot yeah a lot of attributes there i think it's um confidence versus cocky you know, there is a razor thin line between the two. And I think those that are confident with their tiptoes right on the edge of, uh, of cocky, but not cocky, right? I think that awareness makes a great fighter pilot for sure. You know, there's an aggressiveness as well. And, you know, we're like, you know, there are times that I'll tell my student, like, you need to be aggressive. And I don't mean like yank the stick and move the airplane in like a violent way. I mean, mentally aggressive. Like I'm thinking about that five miles before I need to think about it when I have a, a closure rate of a thousand knots. And so I think, you know, that aggressiveness and, and really, I think the last thing is, is, uh, by, you know, and you've been around us enough people that are like, Oh, you know, it's not really like the movies. No, it's totally like the movies. It I mean, is exactly <laughs> like Top Gun. Walking around at Bozeman when there was 10 odd of you guys cutting around, I say this in a very good way. I feel like it's people have embraced it a little bit and are probably showing it off because there's civilians walking around and everything, but that is the personality type. It really is. I mean, other than the, um, you know, the shirtless volleyball and uh, white towels in the locker room, right? You play with your shirt on or? You don't, yeah, we, we keep our shirts on, but <laughs> no, um, in, in all honesty, I mean, there is a bit of that like... I can't be second guessing where I'm at. There's that level of confidence. There's a level of mental aggressiveness. Uh, and there's also the ability. And I think this is really the key um, is you've got to be able to be self-aware that when you hear a criticism or a critique or a debrief, because that's what makes the United States Air Force, in my opinion, uh, hands down uh, the most lethal Air Force the world's ever known because we debrief and we debrief each other hard. And that's where Top Gun gets it wrong. Like, hey, you're right. I am that good. Like, dude, that guy would not would not last long. But um, the fact that we hold each other each other to a very high standard that is unwavering. And I know that Top Gun was Navy Fighter Weapons School, not Air Force Fighter Weapons School. But is it true that there's a plaque that's given out to the best pilot at the end? 
Yeah, there's always, you know, awards for different things. Uh, I was the youngest guy in my class and uh, I could tell you the long story about how I had to walk uphill both ways. But uh, Is that the long preamble to you telling me that you didn't win the plot? I did not. <laughs> definitely did not. And what was it like teaching? How did you find being an instructor versus being a student? So, you know, luckily, um, the folks that show up to the weapon school are very well vetted. I mean, they are the ace of the base that they're coming from. Uh, not only do they fly well, are they articulate? They need to be able to write. They need to be able to come up with ideas and theories that they want to prove from a tactical perspective. So in many ways, uh, being a student was just about my own survival to get through the course. The stress of being an instructor was the fact that you wanted to be a good instructor. You wanted to be not just then, you know, there, there were instructors that would go and yeah, they were great at dogfighting. They could kick your butt as a student every time, but that didn't necessarily make them a great instructor. What made somebody a great instructor was the fact that, you know, you were genuinely affecting the students learning and making them ultimately a better instructor. So that was the part for me that I absolutely loved uh, about being at the weapon school. And every instructor that you're flying with is the best of the best. Now you're also flying with the best of the best student that they can give you. So you get four weapon school instructors and students and a four ship of F-16s, you could do some major work. Have a bit of fun as well, I imagine too. Oh yeah, for sure. I imagine that being a pilot, more specifically being a fighter pilot, like in any endeavor, there are some things that come naturally and easily to you and other things which you find more challenging versus your peer group. What were those for you? What came most naturally to you and which parts of the skill set did you have to work the hardest on? In the jet, actually doing the I wasn't the fastest learner, but I was one of those guys that once I learned it, I was going to be the best at that skill set. So I think once I identified that in myself, that man, I could have to work really hard in the very beginning and I'm probably not going to get it the first time. Uh, but then my learning curve was going to go, you know, pretty vertical was one of those things that, uh, that, that really helped me specifically. So luckily though, uh, like during the weapon school, uh, the dog fighting, the one versus one BFM type stuff, basic fighter maneuvers that did, uh, come naturally. I worked really hard on it before I got to the weapon school. Um, so luckily I, I did all right during that phase. Cause that's, that's a brutal one to go pull nine G's, you know, multiple times a day and then find out that you didn't cut the mustard and you got to do the ride again tomorrow. You know, it's, it's physically just, just grueling. Is part of dogfighting a competition between the two pilots for who can sustain that sort of physical exertion longer? Is that a part of it? Who can hold the G's more or is it more just in a training environment, having to do something like that over and over and over again is brutal. I think it's both. I mean, you know, there are times where in, in the F-16, um, is really known for being what they call the best rate aircraft. So it can, it can accelerate while holding nine and a half G's in a level turn. I mean, and it, so when I say rate, it's the rate at which it's the nose translates through the horizon, how many degrees per second, which in the F-16 is a lot. So if you are fighting somebody and they are on their rate game plan and they're flying it really well, the only thing you can do is fly yours better. So that is an absolute time where it is that mono imano who's going to release the stick and pull, you know, 8.6 G's just for a second for a breather and then get back on it. I mean, that could be the difference of, you know, 20 or 30 degrees of angles and really hard to recover from that, depending on who you're fighting. So after you finish fighter weapons school, can you tell us a bit about Draken? Yeah. So there's a quick intermediary in between. So when I was teaching at the fighter weapons school, there became an opening on the Thunderbirds, the aerial demonstrations team that represents the United States Air Force. I was politely voluntold that I was going to stop teaching at the weapons school and I was going to go across the street and go fly with the Air Force Thunderbirds. And um, just a, a quick music analogy, right? Like if being a fighter pilot was music, teaching at the fighter weapons school, I was like Kirk Hammett. I was the lead guitar player in Metallica, you know, shredding with explosions going off on stage. <laughs> but being a Thunderbird was like being a Backstreet Boys. <laughs> it's still music and it's still, you're still flying the F-16, but it just, the, the role and the mission, totally different, right? So you got to understand, I was a captain at the time and I was just so into just like learning how to fly this machine uh, to the best of my abilities. And, uh, but I get, I get voluntold, if you will, to go over to the Thunderbirds, which was just absolutely incredible. And is that a gig that's, 
popular and that people aspire to within the Air Force or is it viewed as is it good, okay for some people when they're done flying in combat? But how does it fit into the overall hierarchy of how people view different postings within the Air Force? You know, I, I think, again, where I was uh, as an instructor in the weapons school, it's like, we didn't even look at those guys. You know, it's like we taxied past. We're like, we are, we're not out to go do loops to music. With the colorful planes. That's right. Um, but um, I will tell you, uh, you know, the Thunderbirds obviously serve a, a huge, huge uh, role in recruitment and retention uh, in the Air Force. And, you know, anybody that really kind of scoffs the Thunderbirds, you know, probably comes from jealousy or something like that, to be honest with you. Now, because of my experience with the Thunderbirds, to, to get to the question, and, and it was relevant that I brought that in there, a really close friend of mine was learning to fly formation. Uh, and I knew a lot of folks from the, the, the air show circuit because I had been a Thunderbird for a couple of years. And it was just really serendipitously of, you know, hey, what are you doing next? Uh, you want to help uh, train some of these guys? We're trying to put together a civilian jet team. And so I was able to be part of that team, you know, the initial part of the training and then got asked to join the team. And, and we were touring America doing the same thing that the Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels do, but like for one tenth of the cost. So that really was our proof of concept as we were uh, flying around, uh, doing shows with a six or seven ship uh, footprint that we had at the time. Thunderbirds have 130 folks on the team. We had 13, so a literal 90% savings in manpower. And we realized we could provide adversary services for profit and save the taxpayer a lot of money while providing amazing training, primarily the DOD. And by August, we had the entire operation of what would become Draken International dreamed up. And then we founded the company in the, in the fall of 2011. And then how long did it take Blackstone to show up and buy it off you? <laughs> uh, about eight and a half years. So uh, we really believed it. The Air Force and the Navy and the Marine Corps cannot ignore a fighter wings worth of airplanes sitting on the ramp ready to go fly. And then who's flying them? We had known quantity folks. With their own gear ready to go. With their own gear ready to go. Really proud of what we did because in the first couple of years, got the math back from Washington and it was, you know, it's cost savings of like $1.6 billion to the taxpayer because we could generate 10 flights for the cost of one flight and an F-22. Yeah. It seems like a genuine gap in a very interesting and unique market that worked, right? Now, let's jump a little bit to, uh, let's jump rather to the war in Ukraine. So a big part of the discussion amongst Western diplomats from the beginning of the conflict, um, and even up until now, has circulated around the provision of F-16 fighter jets whether or not the U.S. would give them, whether or not the U.S. would allow its allies to transfer F-16s that they had bought to Ukraine, et cetera. So I think what might be useful, first of all, is to take a step back and just ask you the simple question of, in a conflict like the one in Ukraine, why do the Ukrainians want F-16s? Yeah, I think the real question is, how do they get the air superiority that they need? Like that's really the question because what they're doing now is essentially, you know, in, they're, they're entrenched in World War I style trench warfare, right? And I think that that is a symptom of the fact that they weren't able to establish and maintain air superiority so that their, their troops had protection on the ground to advance in, in, a, in a more modern way. I think that's really the question. And I think the easiest answer is, well, we'll give them F-16s, you know, the most amazing airplane ever made. I have to say that as an F-16 guy, but, um, you know, I really think, you know, that that's where, what is viable, uh, what is available and what is something that sends a message that we're serious about giving a tool to the Ukrainians so that they can try to gain and maintain air superiority. Well, let me ask the question a different way. Do you think the F-16 would be a good tool for the Ukrainians to establish air superiority? Yeah. So the real hard question the one thing that the Russians do very, very well is their integrated air defense system. Their surface-to-air missile systems, dating back to the ones that were used during the Vietnam era that shot down a lot of U.S. Air Force, Navy, and Marine pilots, have only gotten that much better. And then, just from a physical proximity, this is not like, hey, we're taking off from an aircraft carrier, and then, I mean, from the moment that they're taking off, 
they're underneath the missile engagement zone of the types of advanced weaponry that that Russia has and that that they're really good at. So would an F-16 help? Absolutely. The tough challenge that the F-16 folks are going to face is the fact that the moment they bring the, the gear up into the well, they are in a missile engagement zone of, you know, like an S-400 that you, you know, you've covered on your show before. It's interesting. Do you think that there are other types of aircraft that would be more effective at establishing air superiority than the F-16? I guess what I'm trying to get at is, have the Ukrainians been so vocal in your view about wanting F-16s just because there's a lot of them around? Or is there something specific to that aircraft versus the MiG-29s, of which there are many kicking around Europe, that they don't seem to want as much? I'm just going to say this plainly, and this is just obviously, uh, you know, Slick Baum's opinion. I think, you know, they had a bunch of MiGs that were Russian airplanes that got shot down, and I don't think that there was a whole lot of uh, affection, if you will, for or, or, or a give a give a factor, right? If a MiG got shot down, because it's a Russian MiG, essentially, that was given to them. I think a US-built aircraft that gets shot down, the optic is totally different. So now I think you're really almost like hedging a bet of like, are you asking Russia, do you really want to shoot down NF-16? And I'm, I'm kind of thinking that one out loud, but I think that's really the kind of like putting my chest out Yeah, no, I understand that you're trying not to project any America rah, 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 where our planes are the best. That's not what you're saying. What you're saying is that the iconography that comes with a Western-made weapon of war is different. So it's relevant because of its provenance as opposed to because of its specifics or its technical capabilities versus other jets. Is it hard to transition from, say, a a MiG-29 to an F-16 or... Like what, what, is it like getting out of a Porsche and getting into a Ferrari or is it like getting out of a helicopter and into a boat? Probably like going from an old Cadillac to a Ferrari, you know, we'll stick with that. Um, and here's a shameless plug for, for my podcast. Cause we just had a discussion <laughs> on this, on the aerospace advantage where we cover the 50th anniversary of the F-16. Um, and we actually talked to one of the first guys that flew it who transitioned from the F-4 to the F-16. And, you know, just like when I went, from the old T-38 into the F-16, ergonomically, it's designed really well to be super comfortable. I mean, like we describe it as it's like sitting in a lazy boy. You know, the seats recline 30 degrees. You've got, you know, there's no center stick between your knees. It's like basically on the armrests. It's a side stick controller. It only moves a quarter inch in every direction. So it's fly-by-wire. And there's this giant bubble canopy over you where you have incredible visibility. And it's almost like you think it and the airplane moves. And it, it doesn't take but about 30 minutes in the airplane for you to rewire your brain from that center stick to the side stick. So I think transition-wise, very easy. You know, the jet lands really fast. Um, the landing gear is kind of narrow, so it's a little bit uh, squirrely handling it on the ground. Because that's, you know, once once you're in the air, the airplane's an airplane. So... I think getting used to the airplane and employing it happens, you know, pretty quickly. I think the longer pole in the tent to really worry about is it's a much tougher airplane to maintain and to generate, you know, sorties compared to uh, like a MiG-29. And um, and you have to really give it to the Russians because I, I get to fly, you know, uh, some Russian-designed airplanes. I mean, they do it really well. They're really robust. Um, they are really simple in a good way to where they don't have complex systems for flight controls and things like that, where, you know, the F-16, as I described, is fly-by-wire. If the computer fails, if the software decides not to run correctly, now you're like, hey, you got to call the maintenance guys over and either reprogram a a computer or swap it out and that kind of thing. So I think those are a little bit of the things that are a a bit more challenging to answer your question than like a MiG-29. It sort of sounds like the MiG-29 is like the AK-47 of the fighter jet world, right? Like it's reliable and it works and it's got the lowest number of moving parts. One of of the things, just as an example, when you look at the MiG-29, it's got two huge jet engines with big square ramps on the front. And those ramps close and louvers open on the top of the aircraft just so it could like literally taxi over gravel and not worry about rocks getting sucked into the engines and bending the, the fan blades. 
Like that is where, again, the Russians did a really great job with designing robust aircraft. Yeah, it's interesting. That's a theme that's emerging across all different sort of sleeves of military technology. It's one of the reasons why America was reluctant to provide the M1 tanks, for instance. They run on a jet engine and it's proven that they're very difficult to, for them to maintain. So that that holds here as well. So the broader conflict, which appears to be metastasizing around the Middle East at the moment, has got many, many fronts. But from your experience in the Air Force, do you anticipate what's unfolding now will be triggering changes in the strategy of the Air Force, say in the Mediterranean or more broadly? That is a really great question. And one of the things I can say is, you know, generically, many of the uh, different aspects of locations and things like that have already been thought about, which is good uh, because I think it really helps bring an objective viewpoint to what a deployment would look like or basing would look like or location in in hardware requirements and things like that. From my experience, would I think that there are people that are updating those plans now? Absolutely. Yeah. And if you look at what's happening in Yemen, how substantial are the strikes that have been prosecuted against the Houthi rebels? The reporting coming out of that part of the world seems to suggest the Houthis remain undissuaded. Do you think that this is something that could be ratcheted up easily? Uh, and do you anticipate that it will have the desired effect at some point? Yeah, I think it's it's such a complex discussion, as you already know, and I know your listeners know. Um, things have not been going great in Yemen for a long time. And I think, unfortunately, uh, the will to fight there is uh, really, really tremendous and, and tough to, to uh, persuade otherwise. And I don't think a few targeted uh, attacks, if you will, or um, you know, taking some of these things head on are really going to make that much of a difference. Um, and frankly, I also think it's really, really tough to know how you could do a broader strategic strike in the country, right? I mean, it's just, unless from a human intelligence standpoint, you know, talking to some of your previous guests, um, to really understand what the ground footprint looks like there, because what a tough way for a country like America, who, you know, people like me that have served in it, you know, believe at the time that we are, you know, squeezing the trigger or pushing the button that we're doing the right thing uh, for humanity, um, I think is a really tough thing to judge with everything that's going on there and and where the strikes are coming from, et cetera. So uh, does America or, uh, you know, our other allies have the capabilities to do more? Heck yeah, absolutely. How effective will that be? I'm not sure. So I, I just think that, you know, the root of the problem uh, is probably not really being being addressed. Yeah, I tend to agree with you for what it's worth. I mean, I, it, it does seem like the... That round of strikes proves both the capability of America to deal those sort of blows quickly and efficiently all around the world, but it also seems to demonstrate their limitations in a geopolitical sense Yes, um, in terms of what they can affect uh, as an outcome. But all around the world and, and in Asia, where I hail from in particular, it does feel like there's an elevated level of competition beginning to emerge between China and America first and foremost, but more broadly against sort of the West and the global South, I guess we call it. The new Chinese fighter aircraft, the J-20 Mighty Dragon, I think it's called. Cool name for sure. (laughs) Cool name. Looked like a pretty good design as well. For any of my listeners who haven't seen one, just imagine the American-made F-22 Raptor and well, basically, that's all you have to do, I think. It looks like almost a straight copy. Pretty much, yeah. So, so uh, without getting into the provenance of uh, the designs for that, how would you compare the military capability of different major world powers across the world? Is America way out in front with the F-35 and the F-22? Um, where does Russia, China, anyone else stack up? You know, and I think really it, uh, th- this is just my speculation and, and, you know, of course, want to make sure that uh, we remain unclassified in all of this discussion. But the real big thing to consider here is the fact that China has really decided to ramp up their capabilities, air, land, and sea. They have progressively expanded their ability to reach out with their island creation. 
and really begin to not be specific in the reasons why they're doing this buildup. So uh, as far as how how we stack up, I think one of the things being an Air Force trained airman is you say, okay, well, I might not have the numbers, but I have the training capability or I have superior hardware. And I think we're seeing a lot of that level set happening. They're on par to build like over a thousand new fighters in the next three years. So how we stack up against that, one of the things that at the Mitchell Institute we talk about quite often is the fact that the United States Air Force is the smallest, the oldest, and the least trained in its history since 1947. So if that isn't ringing alarm bells for uh, our elected officials and our citizens to start saying like, look, we need to take care of our military. We need to make sure that we have uh, the right numbers and, and things like that. You know, we, we, we should not then be surprised if we turn around and we get a, a big bloody nose from somebody that we thought we were never going to have to fight. So, so there's a recruitment issue in the Air Force as well, because it's well telegraphed in the two other main services. But I guess the headlines we more often see about the Air Force are about budget overruns and, and you know, how much money has been allocated to various programs. But you're saying it's, it's still proving difficult to recruit as well. That's also a challenge. I mean, that is across the entire DOD. I mean, let's just really break it down. You know, after the first Gulf War, the Air Force never left because the result of the first Gulf War was a northern and a southern no-fly zone to where uh, American airmen had to deploy airplanes and maintenance and everything else to make sure that Iraq didn't fly north or south of, of their no-fly lines. And then they went all the way up until... Uh, 2003, when shock and awe happened. And, you know, the Air Force has never left. So the Air Force has essentially been actively at war since 1990 in the first Gulf War. I never knew that. Yeah. And so with that, there's been, you know, oh, well, now we need boots on the ground and we need this and, you know, all the special warfare stuff with the Navy. And, you know, the Air Force compared to the other services has been underfunded. And, oh, by the way, they just developed a new uh, service underneath the now Department of the Air Force with the Space Force, which... You know, that was essentially, I think, designed to try to take some financial budget off of the Air Force because then the Space Force would get its own budget, which it never did. You think it was an appropriation strategy to set up the Space Force? Well, and I think not only appropriations, but also from doctrine and other, other types of things sure, that they really... Sure, but that was one of the benefits, was to put a, an item which is perceived to be expensive on the menu. That's right. Or even just to get a budget plus up for the department now so that they could pay for you know two services. You got to you know do all the things that you have to do to design a new service. So you know at the end of the day, you mentioned the F-22. There were supposed to be nearly 400 F-22s uh, produced on the initial buy. And the buy was reduced through what was called, you know, the peace dividend after the war had fallen, the wall, sorry, had, had fallen. And we were going to take this break from the Reagan era buildup. And we dropped the buy from, I think it was 384 to, to 187. So 187 F-22s, which we've lost three of. So now there's 184 F-22s and we are not able to buy more even if we wanted to because Lockheed Martin has shut down the <laughs> production facility and like you couldn't you know create an F-22 if you wanted to. No, I didn't know that so they're not making them at all anymore just the F-35. Just the F-35. And is that because of constraints on the manufacturer's side they can't run both lines at once or? That's right yeah and you, you couldn't expect Lockheed to keep keep that thing in cold storage when they're like you know we can produce more F-35s or whatever the case may be so Again, from an air power perspective, uh, I think it is a time of concern, absolutely, not only from a hardware budget perspective, but you mentioned the manpower uh, perspective. You know, it's hard to recruit and it's hard to retain folks. You know, just just looking at the, the silly meme pages on Instagram, you know, where people are like, hey, why would I stay in the Air Force when, you know, I can make a fistful of money flying for the airlines? I mean, when I was flying, we never even talked about going to the airlines. You know, it wasn't even like... You know, it wasn't about the money. And I yeah. think for most people, it's not about the money, but people probably want to be on a winning team and know that they've got a good shot. So I don't know if that has anything to do with it. That's just a, a speculative kind of rhetorical type question. But, you know, there's definitely something going on to where folks don't want to serve. Uh, yeah, no, it's definitely a theme. Um, that's a convenient segue to another topic I wanted to cover, which is artificial intelligence. So 
you know, there's a lot of discussion now about fully autonomous armed drones, whether they be in the air, underwater, or even on land. Is this the future of where you think investment and R&D in the fighter jet space is going? Is it going somewhere towards AI, towards a solely automated drone offering? Or do you think that over the long term, you'll need manned cutting edge weapons like the F-35 and drone technology wherever that goes? Yeah, I, I definitely think it's the latter. It, it is a, a combined effort where there's terms like loyal wingman that you may have heard uh, in, in the news. Crude, uncrewed teaming is the term. And, and really, I think that there's two things that really are at play here. Number one, the hardware, as we're mentioning. If an F-35 is really expensive, but I could plus up the numbers that I need since I'm not building any more F-22s and have uh, some some lethal wingman Maybe they're built on the cheap, so they're uh, somewhat attributable, i.e. it's not the biggest budgetary loss or, uh, you know, if one gets shot down or, or I intentionally kind of throw it out as a decoy or, you know, kind of hope it gets towards the target to preserve the crewed fighter aircraft like the F-35 that are very expensive and take a long time to build. Um, so I think it really is a combination of the fact, I mean, for me as a, as a forward thinking, you know, futuristic guy, yeah, I would love to have to be in an F-35 and have two uncrewed wingmen with a couple missiles on them. What happens there is I buy capacity cheap mm-hmm. and I mitigate risk by uh, making sure that I potentially leave a target area or an intercept timeline earlier and I allow an attributable type or uncrewed type of quote unquote drone if to go out and uh, and get closer to the target and buy more risk. But an AI is really, you know, the the brains behind what makes that happen. I think the big question, and, and I'll give you my thoughts on it, but is the level of autonomy that we allow AI to uh, provide to that uncrewed teammate. We do have a few great papers at uh, the Mitchell Institute that talks about this. And what we really understand, and I think this is where the direction that not only uh, the government is going, but also our uh, industry partners is you will always need a human on the loop. And we say human on the loop now because uh, I think we as a society don't want to build some sort of mindless drone that's just programmed to go out and, and kill a target. We've all seen Terminator, right? Right. We've all seen it. So we want to have the ability to to make the decision to yes, prosecute or not. Uh, based on the last you know minute parameter, so I, I think we'll always have the ability um, up up until you know the last second. You could even argue with weapons that we have already, like the AMRAAM, where it's already kind of autonomous, right? We know, hey, there's a bad guy uh, airplane that I want to shoot down in a beyond visual range intercept. If I shoot that missile at range, let's just nominally call it, I don't know, thirty miles. I can't recall that thing once it's out there. I've given, you know, it essentially we're just using, you know, software and this new fancy term of AI, but we already do a lot of that. Well, stuff, that, right? that's exactly where I was going with this line of sort of questions, right? Because my next question was going to be, I mean, how automated already is a cutting edge fighter jet like the F-35? And what are we really talking about here in this debate about automation? Like I, I can imagine without knowing that the F-35 already has some pretty high-end technology available at the pilot's fingertips. And really, are we just talking about a line of code that lets this thing select whether or not to release the weapon or not? Do we already have the technology that can find a target and put and put ordnance onto it wherever it is kind of thing? Sure. I, th- I think you could argue that we've had that for a long time. Um, you know, I think it's, it, again, our uh, American or Western, you know, mentality is, you know, Hey, if I'm controlling the uh, the bomb that's already falling via gravity, but at the last second I can move the cursors off of the target and decide not to not to have a good impact. Um, how much control do we want up to the very end? And I think there's already an argument that you know there are times where we we give away that control at the moment of consent. But the fact that a human consented for that to happen, right? And I think that's the thing ultimately to go back to your terminator comment. Uh, I think as long as we can always hold uh, a person accountable, that's where we want to be. So in a way, I mean, programs like the F-35 program, probably where a lot of this technology actually comes from originally. And the question now is what to put it onto and whether or not to let it select targets by itself. That's right. 
and, you know, and again, it's it's the forethought of you know the the parameters in which. Uh, and you're right, you know, uh, back when I was flying the F-16, what made a really good F-16 pilot was the fact that uh, they could build a men- mental picture and then utilize that HOTAS that I mentioned before to to find the targets, say, okay, hey, there's somebody off my nose 20 miles to the left. Okay, I found them on the radar. Okay, now they're not squawking a certain code and uh, somebody else has been tracking it from its point of origin where it's taken off. And it kind of, we go through this mental calculator to say, you know, four out of five things are bad. You know, if, if it looks like a duck, it smells like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And then we say, yep, it's a bad guy. And we shoot it and they go, man, I hope I did my threat matrix correctly. Yeah. Well, you know, now in the F-35, just to make you know, this example is a lot more simple. There's a 42 inch screen in front of you with, you know, the radar and it does that math and those calculations for you. And it probably based on what was programmed show up as a red triangle on your, so you know, it's bad. So, so, so this stuff to your point is already happening. I think it's just at what point, you know, do we ever give a computer the ability to consent? And and I think more people as they uh, unravel this thing are kind of leaning towards a no, there's going to be a human on the loop. Okay, and that got, kind of answers a little bit the last question I wanted to ask you on AI, which which is to drill a bit more down into that human on the loop concept. What's the difference between having slick bomb up there behind the stick and a remote control operator flying it like they would a predator drone from somewhere on the ground in America? Why can't you do that with fighter jets in the same way as you can do it with an armed predator drone? the latency. I mean, you, you flew in, in a jet. I mean, you can't accept a second and a half delay, right? What can happen in a second and a half in a dogfight or, or, uh, an intercept timeline, uh, it's an eternity. And so there's a lot of that, you know, what you'll see, uh, based on maneuvers and things like that, you know, really comes down to, uh, you know, weapons management and things like that. You know, if by the time, yeah, I might be able to, to, to shoot uh, an air-to-air target that's coming right at me at 100 miles, but if it turns 45 degrees, I would not press the button because the, the missile won't make the intercept. And in that second and a half delay, not to say that it couldn't happen if you're sitting in the airplane, but you know, it, you're really going to have that much more of real-time decision-making. That makes sense to me. The other thing that I remember thinking when I went up with you guys as well was the level of visibility that you have all around you looking through that canopy, like you do actually in some weird way, you, you can position yourself three-dimensionally and where you are versus I felt like that based on the visual. And I don't think you would get that looking at a screen or through a virtual reality headset. No, you, you couldn't do that in all honesty, you know, the visual acuity and those types of things. Plus, and you talk to the sensor operators and, and, uh, and, and the pilots that, that fly, you know, like a reaper. And they'll tell you like the hardest thing is you're looking down a soda straw is the term that you use quite often because I mean, it's like, you know, literally less than an angle degree of field of view. So it's not, I mean, you flew in the jet, you know, you can move your head around. We've got 120 degree, you know, field of view with our eyeballs. So looking around uh, the cockpit and then maneuvering the airplane, you almost can see 360 around you, you know, fairly quickly. Is there anything else on the horizon in technology in your area of expertise that you think is going to be a meaningful part of sort of this discussion 10 years from now? Yeah, I really think right now, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, we've got fifth gen aircraft flying with third gen weapons. Um, Things like, you know, the AIM-9 Sidewinder that was really developed in in the mid 50s that have just kind of been tweaked. You know, don't get me wrong, it's pretty awesome. But uh, same thing with the AMRAM, uh, it's an incredible medium range uh, air-to-air missile. But I think once we kind of break this paradigm of it's a radar uh, missile, it's an infrared missile, and it's a cannon on the airplane, uh, and, we, and we think about different types of weaponry, I think that's going to be the, the real pivot that happens in the next, you know, 10 plus years. Give us any tips here. Is there a laser coming? I mean, I, that's what I would love to see. I mean, <laughs> who doesn't want uh, laser beams? So, um, you know, those, those types of things are really tough. You know, we've proven that uh, from a technological standpoint, it's really hard to cool those things down. But, you know, that is the type of quantum leap, if you will, that I'm, that I'm uh, suggesting. Okay. We've covered a lot of serious topics. So I'm going to finish with a couple of fun questions on one topic. So how many years have you been flying? since you first started yeah so i started in the year 2000 so 24 years that's easy math i can do that right (laughs) so 24 years 
Have you ever seen a UFO? No. But you've seen the footage that's been released by the Department of Defense? I have. What do you make of these things that are up there in the sky that we don't seem to know what they are? Yeah, I'll be honest with you. Um, a couple things come to mind. Number one, uh, first and foremost, you know, of course, I believe my fighter pilot, you know, brothers and sisters, if they see something that doesn't look or smell right, mm. um, you know, how could it be explained? You know, there there are a lot of uh, anomalies that are out there. Um, you know, I've had my radar grab onto, you know, a piece of chaff or the wrong thing, or, you know, frankly, what if, what if we are doing a really good job, uh, in secret places with R and D and, you know, Hey, you're just the average Joe out there flying and you happen to, to grab something you're not supposed to, you know, maybe that's potentially what's going on. I don't know. Um, other than that, I don't have an answer just like everybody else. Yeah. Uh, is it, is it a topic? Cause we're led to believe, um, you know, based on that one big raft of reporting um, where the Pentagon confirmed some footage, which is, I think, from a, FLIR, a forward-looking infrared radar camera um, where something moves at an anomalously high speed and the, and the pilots are all yahooing and da-da-da-da. But is, that a, is this a topic that pilots talk about amongst themselves? You know, is it something that's ever really been around the water cooler in, in your career or is that is it been a beaten up a bit, you think? No, I, I think it's it's uh, going a little nuts. I mean, I have never sat around and be like, "Hey, man, uh, watch the news, man." I mean, has that ever <laughs> happened to you? Like, uh, no, I mean, I, I haven't. Um, so again, not that I don't believe uh, folks that report a true concern, but for me and in, in the circles that I run in, you know, which is a pretty good circle, uh, have not known any of that stuff. All right. Well, that's the biggest takeaway from this discussion. Slick bomb on the record: UFOs not real. But my listeners are going to look at your CV and see some of the places you've worked and struggle to believe you on that topic. Slick, thanks so much for having me in. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate you. All the best. Cheers, mate. Cheers. That's it for this episode of The Intersection. I'm Jack Wright, an Australian journalist based in New York City. I'm a contributor to The Washington Post and The Australian Financial Review and a former executive director of JP Morgan Chase. As ever, thanks for listening.